0: Hi, this is Deep Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. This is an earlier-than-usual show. It's the 26th of February, 2013, and our special guest is uh, someone I'm calling a good friend, Gavin Dykes. I'm not sure I'm really qualified. in our, We're not at a point in our relationship for me to call you a good friend, but I feel that way each time I see you.
1: Well, we'll see how this goes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I am on a hotel wireless connection. I think that's causing a little bit of a lag. Uh, If you if you hear me talk over Gavin, I apologize. I'll try and stop quickly. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell, Menko, and Blackboard Collaborate for support. Coming up, we have lots of fun activities this year. Uh, On March 28th is our School Leadership Summit. That's at schoolleadershipsummit.com. It's a virtu- new free virtual conference for school leaders. Uh, we have just had confirmed Yong Zhao, Michael Fullen, um, Bill Brennan, George Carros as keynotes, uh, which should be a lot of fun. We have a lot of great presentations being submitted by practitioner leaders. And like our other conferences, this is a highly inclusive event intended to create an opportunity for the community to talk to each other. Then coming up in June at ISTE, we have our ISTE Unplugged event, ISTEunplugged.com, which starts with our all-day unconference on Saturday, which is called Hack Education this year with Audrey Waters as co-host. In June, we have the STEM XCON. This is the Worldwide STEM Plus Conference, uh, thanks to HP as founding partner in that event. In October, the library 2013 conference, and in November, the global education conference, and others that we're working on that should be a lot of fun, including a worldwide homeschool conference that we that I keep promising to talk about, but uh, that we should have some more details on in the coming week. Coming up on the future of education, two days from now, Roger Shank talks about cognitive science and learning. On March 5th, we're having a discussion on virtual book clubs with Ben Rhymes, who's been running a few. Um, Chris Mercoliano will talk to us about uh, childhood. Paul Thomas on poverty and the corporate takeover of education. Edith Harrell-Caperton on constructivism. Um, Anyway, lots more there, lots of fun coming up. Um, New on the list, if you're paying attention, Elliot Washer uh, on his book, Leaving to Learn. Peter Gray on his book, Free to Learn. Will Richardson on why school. All, all of these are up at futureofeducation.com. And there is a Google Calendar if that's helpful to you. If you've missed any of our sessions, they're all recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate form in an MP3. Maurice Gibbons talked to us about self-directed learning. Now that was really fun, especially uh, contrasting it with Alan November's vision of who owns the learning. Uh, one thing that Alan was reluctant to have me say was that his vision of owning learning was different than fully self-directed learning, and I think Maurice's interview really pointed that out. Before that, Laura Grace Walden talked about free-range learning, Carol Black on Occupy Your Brain, Steven Bezrushka on Poverty, anyway, lots up there, over 300 shows, all of those recordings are free. This is a chance for those of you in the live studio audience to let us know where you're listening from. Look for the star. It's the second icon down. Double click on it and then click on the map. It's fun to know the time and the temperature. Well, it looks like we're North America-centric today, Gavin.
1: does. It looks like the temperature's better, and it's earlier in the day.
0: <laughs> where are you located?
1: I'm in London, or just to the south of London, in the United Kingdom.
0: Fun. I knew you were in the UK. I wasn't quite sure exactly where. And you get over to the United States with what kind of frequency?
1: I'm... I mean, it seems amazing to me to, to, to think it, but I think I'm usually over in the States four or maybe five times a year.
0: Fun. So wherever you're joining us from, thanks for participating for listening to the recording. We sure appreciate your taking the time to do so. There is a mighty bell room for this conversation. This is if you want to continue the discussion after the interview. Mighty Bell is the new content and curation project by Gina Bianchini. I do consult for Mighty Bell. Gina was one of the co-founders of Ning and I consulted for her on that project for educators. Everything Gina does she tries to do for educators for free. So hopefully see that as a positive. But you can continue the conversation in that space and the link is in the chat. Gavin, could you tell us a little bit about the Education World Forum
1: yeah, the, the Education World Forum is an event that has happened uh, annually over the last nine years. So there have been 10 of them. They happen in January each year. Uh, there were events that were initially started by the government of England uh, to bring ministers of education together to uh, look at policy, in, uh, particularly as it pertains to education and technology and to uh, share the challenges they face, and also the successes they've had, and to, uh, in in effect, become a little uh, something of a community where they can help each other. So that started uh, back in 2004, and it's grown each year, um, pretty much. Uh, And this year in January, uh, just the the month past, we had uh, uh, 85 ministers of education together, um, there, were, there were more than that initially registered, but as always, there are events which take precedence in the Minister's Diary that come into play. But actually attending in London, there were 85 ministers and a, a big event for for them to share their views. It, it overlaps with the BET show <coughs> in London, which is uh, the biggest uh, education technology show that we, we have, and uh, that was sort of the... Ministers have an opportunity to move on from their discussions uh, and to then have uh, to view bet show the the examples of technology being uh, exhibited there and also take part in some of the events that run around BET.
0: So I know you protect that event to some degree so that they feel comfortable really working with each other. What can you tell us over the course of the last ten years? Have there been any trends that you've seen that you're comfortable describing that come out of that event?
1: I think the, uh, what, one of the things that I, I would say is that uh, ministers are uh, having extraordinarily challenging jobs, as do teachers, as do just about everybody else in education. Indeed, as do students. And I think what has been If there's a success in the event, it is encouraging openness amongst ministers so they feel able to um, share things in it. And I think that's probably true of us all, as we have um, our different communities and the different communities with which we work, uh, that being able to share things is important. What you discover, of course, is that uh, we will all have different experience and different views of people, both in authority and of students. But at every level, you have people who are uh, honestly committed to doing good things with an education, some extraordinary uh, heroes amongst each of those groups, and I think to to identify who those are, to um, celebrate the good things that are being done, uh, and to support progress in education. Uh, It doesn't matter whether you're uh, doing things with students, or teachers, or leaders, or um, local politicians, or national politicians. Uh, The same is true for all these groups. I think they all need uh, a little bit of um, support, looking after, and getting the best from from them all.
0: You and I are going to talk about students, student voice, uh, entrepreneurship. Are there ways in which your views On these topics have been informed by some of the activities or discussions at the Education World Forum?
1: I would would say not in so far as I I arrived prejudiced and I remain prejudiced (laughs) and (laughs) (laughs) And so my prejudice is uh, that uh, and uh, I've looked at this and worked before I ever got became involved with Student Voice uh, work when I was working in what is effectively community college uh, and higher education. And uh, the the opportunities for students and young people to contribute to, to the way education is organized and what's involved in education is, is extraordinarily um, – we don't make use of that extraordinary resource that we have. But we sort of close it down, I think, far too often. And for me, uh, when you have some research suggesting that children are at their most creative or people are most at their most creative when they're young, some research which suggests that they have their people have their greatest social conscience when they're about thirteen or fourteen uh, and yet we don't uh, work with that to make the most of it uh, and to encourage that to shape the way both the way we are and the way the the young people are themselves, just seems extraordinary. And student voice is, my prejudice is that we should be doing an awful lot more with student voice. And perhaps student voice does it down. What we should be talking about is emerging leaders, we're we're developing uh, or we're working with young people to help them develop them as their leaders in their own communities as it were, with their own age groups, but leaders of us all as well.
0: Do you see any larger patterns uh, where there might be a difference between the kinds of work that countries do where the Minister of Education is a political appointment versus countries where the Ministry of Education is somewhat separated and much more research-based?
1: I think I don't see patterns. I think one of what I more see is the importance of awareness. If we can uh, make grand statements about what other people should do but unless we understand the circumstances within which they work and operate uh, and the circumstances include both culture and structures uh, then we're going to be uh, we're not necessarily going to be offering anything that's terribly sensible in their context. So, uh, you know, for one example, I I, I might take out in that is that uh, how often do we hear of uh, how we should be doing just what, say, Korea is doing or Finland is doing? Uh, But what that too often doesn't do is take account of the context of Finland or the context of Korea, uh, and then uh, allow us to. Amend the good things they're doing for our circumstances, so that we can, uh, you know, improve our systems and, and perhaps move towards some of the good results that these countries uh, seem to have.
0: Okay, so let's move to student voice or uh, emerging leaders. Is there a difference between student voice and self-direction? One of the things that sort of um, nagged at me lately, is is the phrase student voice, because it seems to have a connotation of students participating in an existing structure rather than building their own structures. Is that a fair criticism, do you think, of that phrase?
1: I I think it is, and I think it's a a fair criticism of the way we're inclined to look at uh, all kinds of innovation. A classic one would be um, Technology and education. Technology and education is too often layered upon an existing system, in my view, rather than looking to the opportunity that we have to uh, move our education system forward and be more innovative with it when we introduce technology. Student voice, I think, falls into that same trap that uh, too often, uh, it, it becomes part of the the systems that we have. So let's have a student council. We have a student council and therefore we can tick that box and therefore it's done. But that's not changing the behaviors. That's not changing the culture. That's not giving students a real voice in what they're doing. It's not listening to them. It may be allowing them to speak but it's not actually changing how we organize things in order to take account of it. And I think when we don't do that a lot of the potential good is missed. Uh, because basically we're going at it from a point of view of um, not being willing to take risks with the existing system, therefore serving the system rather than uh, improving learning.
0: The Washington Post just uh, published a uh, short article on a program in a school where students were really self directed for a period of time and it's a it's a it's a fun they have a fun little video and it's really interesting to watch. I think most interesting to me were the, um, the very strong comments below the article from people who felt like school should be hard, it should be difficult, and it shouldn't be fun. And they, and they felt like what was being portrayed in the video was fun. Is this kind of a fundamental uh, difference of opinion? Do you have any sense of why this, this dichotomy exists?
1: I find it very strange why anyone would see things in that way when um, uh, there are various things in brain science that tell us about the way that people learn and what makes people learn well. Uh, I have to say I haven't seen fun necessarily in brain science. However, I have seen things like um, uncertainty is a critical part in helping learning take place. So if you give students something which is just where the outcome is, a uh, know in fact beforehand, the teacher knows it beforehand. So there's the answer. I, I know what the answer is. We're asking you the question, and you've got to get the right answer, otherwise uh, nothing's going on. Now that, no, quite that simply is not a lot of fun, uh, nor is it a very good way of learning. Because there is little uncertainty, and the brain science tells us that dopamine production and dopamine is what helps the uh, synapses build within the brain to help learning go on. So there's science behind this that suggests that there are, uh, you know, building that uncertainty in, perhaps building fun in, if we do that in the right ways, is one of the ways in which we will improve learning and make things better. Why wouldn't you want to do it better?
0: Well, that raises a really interesting question, uh, and one which we we can decide if we're going to touch deeply or not. But and, and maybe you have some perspective on this because of the Education World Forum. But um, a clearly, part of why schools exist is to enforce some level of control on a population, to either encourage a certain kind of behavior or to um, to to project a desire for certain kinds of work to be done or certain characteristics and skills. Uh, Is there a degree to which, um, and I want to be very careful about how I say this, but is uh, is there an overt agenda that sometimes is in conflict with the kind of student independence that we're thinking of?
1: I'm not sure that there is. I I think there's part of me thinks almost that it's more accidental, that you set up a system which is built in a, a, a particular way of working which was common at the time when schools were first set up. And you become rooted in that system and therefore it becomes very difficult to change. So when you look at the history of schools, in some ways, many uh, uh, while well you can go back to a long time ago, the current type of schooling seems to be set up, set up largely in a period uh, what is it, 100, 150 years ago, uh, and that's the model that has been uh, tends to have gone forward. Clearly, there are, I think, there are lots, there is lots more change in it than people uh, often suggest. People who are not in schools think that uh, it's all exactly as it used to be. Um, Certainly some of it is, but I think there are also some examples of where things have moved forward. Uh, But I I think it's sort of accidental. And the accidental part of it is uh, that a a bit like lots of systems, like lots of companies, actually if we we take disruptive innovation. And um, disruptive innovation has been uh, first been portrayed when you see big established companies doing things in a particular way that they become stuck into. And then another way comes along which is much cheaper and more effective and completely undermines that original company's way of working. Uh, and the, company, the original company wanted to make a profit, it wanted to do well. But it's just become the nature and culture of people is such that they get stuck in the way of working and it's difficult to change. I think education is a bit like that, that we've uh, we've got a model which has become established. Uh, the teachers who go into teaching, uh, and this is by no means all of them, but often what they see as what teaching is likely to be is based on their experience. And their experience is really about continuing the old, Rather than bringing in the new, and I'm not throwing that at teachers because I know <laughs> of so many good things that are going on, but I'm just saying that the culture and the way organisations work, I think, that bring us to that kind of slowing down or or that not moving forward as quickly as the, uh, as organisations might. We can see it in industry. We can see it in schools.
0: So tell me about, the, from your perspective, how you balance sort of boundaries and freedom. Uh, John Seeley Brown talks about sort of the two ways in which we use the word culture, one as something that, that kind of puts boundaries around us, the uh, cultural expectations versus culture which is sort of free-form growth. When we think about preparing students for adulthood, how do you balance the structure with the freedom?
1: One of the uh, things that's, that's been going around in my mind anyway is that uh, I've had a number of discussions recently around curriculum, and uh, my, my sense is that curricula have over the years been added to and very seldom is anything taken out of them, so they tend to be pretty full, generally, I, and I know there are some movements and in a number of countries, again, good things are happening. Uh, but. What I wondered about was whether we should really begin to judge a curriculum uh, as being good, not on the basis of what's in it, but on how much space is there for us to, for for students to grow, or for teachers to develop uh, to build on their own strengths as they present and support that curriculum. So rather than seeing uh, you know a curriculum for a subject chilling the whole time, what it, it has is the core, which is absolutely crucial and uh, uh, most would agree is uh, absolutely crucial but then you have space around that and it's for the teacher to build in their strengths and also to open it up to the strengths of the cohort of students that they have at any particular time to see it build through. Uh, And I think there's something in that uh, about uh, how you get the balance between things. Uh, The big thing is it is balance. It's not about throwing it all all out and becoming chaotic, but I think what we've moved to is a situation where, um, and, and you know this phrase—I think I've used this in our conversations before, David. Uh, you know, st- st- uh, students being the objects of education rather than the agents in their own learning, so that they're so tied down by everything that's got to be got through that that's what happens. And in the same trap um, for, for many teachers, there's the same trap for many teachers, as they become um, the objects, or, or as, as governments might say, the objects of um, teaching, or the objects, or if they're trying to change things, the objects of change rather than the agents of change. Uh, and that's where we, we get sort of a dysfunctionality, both at the teaching level and at the learning level.
0: So how does this relate to your thinking about uh, entrepreneurship?
1: Well, so there's one kind of underhand way. Um, I've, I've, I've kind of increasingly thought about enterprise. And one of the things I find attractive about enterprise is that uh, you can ask a learner almost at any age, What's, um, reflect on your own world. what. What things do you think you could improve in your old world? Uh, Or what would improve them? And and how might you do something about that? And you can get people thinking about that kind of thing. If they they start dealing with those kinds of questions, and you can encourage them to think about how they might uh, manage a change or improvement, then you you have a model for um, the child playing a more uh, agency, having more agency in developing what they're learning about, in sharing uh, and co-producing the, the learning that's going on with the aid of the teacher, uh, the guiding, guiding principles of the teacher. And, and for me this is where the underhand bit is really because what that is doing just by calling it enterprise, by looking to the children's ideas and supporting their development what you, what is potentially happening, is that uh, you're changing the relationship between uh, more traditional ways of approaching learning, and when you do that, um, I, in in all my experience, I I think I've seen uh, that that has been a, an extraordinarily positive experience.
0: So uh, Alan November gave some great examples of this from his own teaching career, uh, where he either brought students together to work on, a, on developing projects in their community or even a class which was around uh, using technology to try and make things better. Uh, and I'm trying to remember who, who after him said the same thing, but what sort of a common refrain is that the students are almost kind of dumbfounded when presented with the opportunity to start something new. Uh, How how does a good teacher or a program like this help to overcome um, what's got to be sort of a significant hurdle of students never having been in that position before?
1: I think that's a very good point. And it's uh, one of the things in talking about uh, enterprise I'm I'm often saying is um, that strange as more a greater number of countries seem to recognize that creativity and enterprise and entrepreneurship are really important skills and they need to be developed. And what they kind of hope that is that magically at the age of 21 after coming out of university or something around that uh, age, they are, uh, people are magically suddenly entrepreneurial and enterprising. Whereas there's been no real development as have gone through school so certainly one of the approaches one of the interests I have is in from the very earliest of ages trying to uh, work with the children's enterprise and develop their ideas around it so we don't run into those problems in the first place I, I think you're right you know if people suddenly are given that opportunity and this is true you know so many different circumstances it's true of adults who suddenly have a choice It's true of uh, it's sometimes true of people and, and sadly uh, in these days we we might see more of this um, it's where people find themselves out of employment and have to stand on their own feet and develop something themselves uh, that's a difficult position to be in in the first instance. so what is needed to be to do that successfully is some kind of support to to help people through. But the the big example I have in my experience in that account, and uh, stop me if this isn't appropriate here, Steve, because you've heard this before, but uh, I uh, early on in my career or early-ish, I took over a department in a community college uh, which was business management and IT. It also included included sport. Uh, I quickly realized, and perhaps I knew before I took the job, that the uh, the department had 35 percent higher education in it, so that would be degree level work and above. It had 65 percent further education, so lower level courses, vocational courses, of a variety of kinds, and it had uh, around about 50 percent of the budget it needed to survive. So I had a choice, I either closed, could close things down or I could seek to develop new sources of income other than the money we got from running government courses. So that's what I, working with the team, it's not something I did myself, it's something I did, we had about 60 staff in that department. We, uh, I presented that as our, the way forward and started to uh, look for the opportunities we might take. Now it happened to be around the time when things like Cisco Network academies were coming up uh the Microsoft were developing their courses, and so that was one route in which we developed the commercial side of things, opening up for courses for people who were in work coming into into the college to do those uh, uh, but other things that uh, another thing I did at that time I was running uh, or had begun to run a couple of the um education programs for young professional soccer players in and around London. And uh, the, uh, as a result of that work, which was going quite successfully, I was asked to bid by the, for uh, development of a system for the whole of the Premier League looking at the education for all young professional soccer players across England uh, in, in the Premier League. And we eventually, as a result, won the contract for development of PremierLeagueLearning.com for all those young professional uh, soccer players. I keep wanting to say footballers, but I don't want to confuse anybody except myself. Um, the, the upshot of that was uh, we won the contract, but I won it on the basis uh, and I, that the Premier League understood I would give this to my students to do and I would pay my students to do it if I won that contract. So we uh, worked to support those students. The students, um, in a sense, were self-selected. They were run, uh, following a course on e-commerce technologies that I'd uh, set up previously. Um, I'd set up, I'd, uh, with my staff had set up. And uh, the students, as a central part of that course, uh, started doing work for the Premier League. In developing the designs for this uh, system, which was a full e-commerce system, it was a system that had education materials which were developed in two other colleges by uh, education members of staff. It tracked the students within it. It took payments uh, from colleges that used, uh, wanted to use those materials, and it provided the support to the students uh, who were in the football, uh, in the soccer teams, uh, wherever they were in the country. Uh, And that was important, because these people are going off to play uh, soccer matches midweek, at weekends, uh, going training at all kinds of times, so they were having to fit in their learning around uh, that professional soccer player's life. What was extraordinary about that, and will never leave me, was the response of those young students to the opportunity. Uh, far from being dumbfounded, they were just so keen to do a good job. Their motivation was extraordinary. And they, uh, of course, I expect this was a particularly high profile opportunity, but it was that, uh, that view of things from students actually doing real things which had a real consequence and being put in the position of trust, if you like that we were having trust in them and supporting them to do a great job, uh, just changed their outlook totally. Uh, I'm not saying they were bad students beforehand. Uh, they weren't. But they, uh, they were, became so motivated, they did produce fantastic work. And that, for me, has forever changed my view. Um, I believe that where we can, wherever we can, uh, in terms of a balanced set of work, To get students doing things that have a real consequence, uh, that might improve their circumstances, that might do some wider good, is something that we should really aspire to. I think uh, it changes the the nature and pace of learning, changes the quality of what people are uh, producing, changes the degree of work that uh, students are willing to put into any particular project.
0: What I hear in that story is this is really sort of deep and important lesson that some significant portion of students who are labeled as failing or um, not succeeding are actually capable of success.
1: I I, I think that's absolutely the case, uh, and I think the, the what what uh, is, is the shame perhaps is I that, that we don't look for that a little bit more and the ways we can do things more. If speaking, I'm going to take a little jump here, um, but another example of uh, where you, we can change the balance in learning if we just think about doing things differently. And this is a story related to um, technology and education and how we use it. Uh, I I don't know if you and how many of you may have heard of Conrad Wolfram and uh, computer-based maths and his approach to it, but if I tell you very briefly a little bit about uh, his approach. Uh, Conrad uh, believes that we, if you look around the world, most math is uh, is focused on computation computation We spend eighty to ninety percent of the time that we do for in, in school based math on computation yet computation is only one small part of that uh, yet we spend we, all the time practicing those uh, by hand a whole lot of computations that computers frankly do better the bits of math that are ignored so often are you know how do you how you know looking at the world around you uh, What questions are there that you can ask that could be solved mathematically? Uh, How can we formulate the questions we need to ask in order to resolve some of the issues we see around us? Uh, And if we can begin to think about and come up with the questions that are good to ask, how do you then translate that into a form that can be handled mathematically? Uh, That could mean writing a computer program, or it could be uh, just doing the initial math and formulating the question in the right form uh, format. Computation then, well that can be done by computer, pretty much. And the final part of the process is that you translate back from the computation output into something that humans can work with and understand and perhaps act on. So it, it just, it, I've mentioned kind of four levels there, the questions, the translation computation and then the translation back to something we can act on. Uh, If we really want to uh, see computing having an impact on math, perhaps we need to change the balance and to accept the fact that computation is done best by computers. We can still do some practice in it, but we don't need to spend 80% of our time. What we do need is an awful lot more time spent on looking at the questions that can be asked in the first instance. And formulating those questions, and then working our way through the other layers to come come out with answers. I think if we do that, we would have a very different kind of uh, approach to that, and we would have a, a very uh, well. We might have something which is much more useful than we have today. When I think an awful lot of young people are being turned away from that. What's interesting in that, of course, is that uh, you can say, well, you know, that's a, a nice theory, or a nice story. Uh, But um, a couple of weeks ago, um, it was announced that, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, that the first country is actually going to take that up as their approach to math. uh, And that happens to be Estonia. Um, I understand. Uh, So actually one national system is really going to go down this route. And we can see the difference that it might make. But all of that just is once again changing the balance, changing the responsibility that we give to people, putting them, you know, in charge of asking the questions, doing, dealing with real life questions and that, rather than the rather uh, what too often is the case, simple examples that we have to do if computation is to work in a simple way.
0: How do those two stories inform our understanding of the balance between uh, creating structured systems for learning and learning as a human endeavor. Um, do do we fall into a temptation or a trap even when we find good alternative or or better ways of promoting learning to build a system around it? When in fact it's much more human than that.
1: I I, I think there is a tendency um, which is uh, it's sorry there's a trap here for me which is just to pretend it all falls into this big bad box uh, but i do I do think there is a tendency to systematize things. I know that in I've worked with a number of organizations working on innovation, and frequently what seemed to happen was that we at the end of uh, or, or, or when we move into a situation where we may be trying to monetize what's been done because uh, we have to have a, a, a not so much a profit, but to earn a living from what's going on. And what happens is that there is a tendency to want to uh, build things into a system that other people can use. And as you build innovations into a system, I think one of the great dangers is that we squeeze all the good that is in them out of it because we are trying to make it some sort of mechanical process that we go through. And yet I think innovation is fundamentally a, a human activity. It's, uh, it's about our culture and our approach, and uh, it's very much a people-based, people-based thing. So I think yes, we do our tendency is to want to systematize so that everybody can have it. But actually, the thing that uh, sustains innovation is uh, about cultures and people, teams and communities and we should focus on the development of those.
0: You've mentioned before to me that the time that you least feel like doing so is the most important time to put your arm around a student's shoulder. Or uh, maybe I've got that wrong, but if it's close, you can run with it. (laughs) Uh, How important is it that we recognize those moments in education?
1: I I think that's right. Vitally important about. It, about it, um, this is true of this is true with colleagues and teachers and everyone. In and fact, I, the story comes from uh, comes from my father, and what he he taught. One of the things he taught me, uh, the time when you um, least feel like doing it, whether it's a child, your own child, or, or whoever it is, when they seem at their most remote and it seems most difficult. That's the time when they probably need that support in the, in the greatest way. Uh, I think uh, possibly systems again, possibly the numbers that uh, numbers people will get to get through, possibly the, the feeling of the need to meet the demand for higher results, uh, things like that are vaguely dehumanizing and can make some people miss. Uh, what is a a big, big opportunity to uh, help somebody through something. And uh, what I love about, or one of the things I love about education is that I do think we have so many good stories about where somebody, uh, where where teachers have done a great job of providing that support in some way or other to help a child through a, a temporary problem. And if they're helped through that temporary problem, it's remarkable how many times they might get somewhere good as a result. Uh, And I think uh, as somebody who who believes in education, uh, it doesn't matter how many times I might be disappointed that that doesn't happen. It's got to be worth it for the times that it uh, does up as a good result.
0: So if you can, I'd love to switch a little bit to thinking about the role of educators and maybe how this is changing. And all of the things that we've been talking about for students, um, uh, agency, um, a passion, interest, a voice, uh, these apply equally to teachers, but it's not often a part of the conversation. Uh, how do we bring this piece of the conversation to the forefront?
1: I, I, you're absolutely right. None, none of these, in a sense, um, I've heard this from too many governments recently. That uh, we're, we're all in this together, uh, and this is not doing it um, for what I'm talking about. I I don't intend to be for pupils alone. It should be for for teachers too. And I think uh, one of the things uh, again in all of this is when it comes to our teacher training, uh, be it. Uh, initial teacher training or on the job training in some way uh, the what we the practices that we hope to instill in people during those periods uh should be played out during those periods so the teachers should experience what it is to to have that support when they're struggling with something when they're because uh, we all do when we're learning um, you know, you have your you have your moments of high excitement and success, and you have your low moments when you just, oh maybe I'm speaking for myself, <laughs> but moments when you just don't get it. So we all need that, and we should we should practice that uh, as we go through. So it is uh, uh, you're absolutely right. We, we need to do that. I, but I think, um, and actually, really, where we met, Steve, first of all, the looking at how we can develop uh, communities of practice and networks that provide that kind of support so it's something which is sustainable, it's something that's built into the culture of teaching and learning and of teachers that they can draw in those communities that we don't see people isolated and in difficulty, I, I think is a, a really important thing to pay attention to.
0: So I'm thinking of two sort of very different examples. Uh, one being Finland and one being Canada, where you have one country that um, has a pretty significant financial and emotional commitment to teachers, where they started from, uh, who provide teachers with that kind of trust and and independence. And Canada, which uh, um, most recently didn't have that background, but sort of decided to trust their teachers. Are there other good examples of places where um, that recognition of the teacher's learning and the teacher's voice and trust uh, are ones that we should be looking at?
1: I think there are, uh, and it's um, you know it's interesting always, uh, or it's always challenging to work out whether we should be looking at countries or particular schools. Um, or particular regions, because there are good things happening. I think in in, in lots of schools and in, in probably every country, uh, things being done where there are extraordinarily few resources, uh, and yet an awful lot has being done with them. I, I, I'm drawn, I have to say, to uh, a lot that goes on in northern Northern Europe. The the Scandinavian countries, I think, have a a, a great Tradition in terms of the way that they handle uh, trust and, and relationships, uh, I believe anyway. And uh, so Denmark and Sweden uh, and Norway certainly uh, do do some great great things in that respect. Having said that, um, I I went with a, a whole load of baggage to um, the Far East a, a number of years ago, uh, and my baggage told me that. Uh, the, 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 it was very traditional models that were used, and it was very harsh. And while I did see some of that, I also saw some of the warmest, uh, friendliest relationships between uh, teachers and students that I, I've seen anywhere in the world. So I, I think we need to be careful that we don't just package things too readily into, into views that uh, are, are are built in some point in history, but perhaps aren't true today. If we're talking about the uh, the Danish experience, I think the thing that really um, caught my eye, and which has something to do with trust, is the uh, well, there's two stories. One one story a, a number of years ago, a, a friend of mine who was a headmaster in the north of England. Uh, had uh, an exchange with students in Copenhagen, and the, uh, so the students had come across to England, and then the English students from the north of England city uh, went across to uh, to Copenhagen. And outside the main station in Copenhagen, for any of you who've been there, uh, you will see rows and rows of bicycles. And this was a few years ago, uh, and certainly at that point, uh, the bicycles were. Uh, largely not locked. And the students from England said, that's extraordinary, <laughs> how are they not locked? And the students from uh, Denmark were, were discussing it with them, but they said, you know, somebody could just steal them. And the students from Denmark said, why would they do that? Which just showed a huge gulf, I think, in culture and outlook. And, and trust and for me uh, it has always been a little story about actually the differences that you can get in societies and the differences in outlooks. And then uh, the other story about Denmark is the current bit in education where uh, a project which has been running now for many years uh, and is developing and growing, um, I, I must admit to you that I've not looked at it in detail recently but I believe it is uh, continuing to grow. And that was in their um, high-stakes exams at age 16, I think. Uh, Students in three subject areas uh, were beginning to be given access to the Internet during those exams. Now, that only really works if you have a good relationship. uh, You have trust between teachers and pupils. You have different forms of trust in the way things are working. And uh, in those uh, What I'm always interested in and the question to ask everybody is, if you gave your students access to the internet during the exams, what questions would you ask? Because it can't be asking about anything to do, anything simplistic like remembering and dredging up a memory of something and writing that down. It has to be about searching, verifying, constructing compelling arguments and then presenting them in an appropriate way. And I think when you do that, based on this trust, then we get somewhere closer to where 21st century skills are than we seem to be at the moment.
0: The story I think of frequently is, um, at least in the States, for years and years, when you took your luggage from an airport, you had to show your tag to an attendant. Mm -hmm. And and at some point that just kind of disappeared, and I've always thought that it, this was one of those systems that really didn't need to be there. But everybody thought that we had to be very careful about someone taking someone else's luggage. But in fact, at some point, just kind of disappeared, and none of us miss it. And I've I've never had my bag stolen. So I I think you know in many ways we sort of create our own. Uh, perceptions of problems that aren't necessarily there.
1: I think that's absolutely right. and it's, uh, When I've been asked to analyze this situation in Denmark in the past, I, I, this may seem a strange thing, but I think it was in the uh, I've been going over there for years. I think it was in the 60s that um, censorship was stopped in Denmark, and everybody thought you'd end up with a rather loose society. But I think what actually happened was people stood up, stood, took, took a step forward, and took responsibility for themselves and their families. And as a result of that, um, that they, they not developed a dependency on government telling them what to do. They developed a capacity to cope with this. And with the development of that capacity to cope with it, that when the internet came along, doing things like. Uh, not having filtering in schools seemed like a natural thing to do. That trust could happen because people were expected to have that level of responsibility. And uh, I think that has been uh, not a planned but an accidental, uh, a successful way of working when it comes to the availability of information we have today and also the good and bad that is available through the, the access to the web. So it's, it's, it may be accidental, but that cultural expectation that people will take responsibility, that people will have developed their capacity to cope with things in a sensible way and to work in that direction rather than closing things down or tying things down and locking things up or putting baggage tags on, maybe uh, has its advantages.
0: So if you have a question for Gavin, this is the time when you can put it in the chat or raise your virtual hand. It's the virtual hand is the third icon over in the participant box. It's at the top of that participant box, you'll see some icons, and it's the hand icon. While we're waiting, if a question comes through, oh, there we go. So Stephanie, I'm going to give you the microphone. You turn it on now by clicking on the top left of your screen on the talk button. And hang on, let's make sure you have audio here. It's showing you don't. Maybe you don't have a microphone plugged in, but feel free to put your question. Are there any thoughts about how to reduce violence in schools, Gavin?
1: (laughs) Oh, that's a bit left field. I, I I think I do think it's about relationships. Uh, uh, If we bear down on people, I'm not sure that is uh, necessarily going to lead lead us to the right balance. So I think the engagement of people, the um, sharing of responsibility with people for for running, uh, uh, running and organizing the way the school is working, that is the route I would try to go. I recognize that's a big call in a tall order when things have gotten in a particular bad way. But I think it is not about closing off opportunity for responsibility, but increasing that opportunity.
0: You know, that reminds me, because we've talked on the show before about the connection between the for-profit prison system and the idea of creating for-profit schooling and the unintended consequences of a profit structure. Uh, there were some great examples 10, 15 years ago of prisons that worked very hard to involve the inmates in the creation of the food and the menus and the activities that saw huge decreases in in violence and, and recidivism. But they typically tended to get overlooked in the more abbreviated political conversations. Um, I don't want to draw too large a conclusion there, but, but oftentimes the sound bite overrules the wisdom.
1: Uh, uh, sadly and absolutely yes, uh, that, that I think uh, I, you know there are certain um, political uh, viewpoints which are held uh, not necessarily by the politicians but in wider society, or belief systems uh, sometimes supported by press. Uh, and if people, uh, if uh, politicians play to those, then that is uh, going to cause the the ideas of a greater sharing uh, to to reduce. And I mean, it's it's like a lot of the discussion about the use of the internet. Uh, so much of it focuses on the negative, and yet when we search around, and I would hope that um, many of us on this call and who will listen to this will have done that, we will find we can find. Uh, I, I, I suggest. Uh, Extraordinary cases of um, good things happening by people working together, sharing responsibility and uh, just the equality that we get by working together through communities and the internet. Uh, It's not all negative uh, and I think uh, moving to that shared responsibility is more often than not. Something when well handled can really make a positive impact
0: Gavin, one of the things that the internet has done is it has brought to the surface again the value of social learning, Um, a a lot of non-institutional learning from peers that's taking place on sites like YouTube, um, but also in many ways just emphasizing the degree to which we learn from each other. Is some of this new, or is this all just a way of looking at learning that that hasn't been at the forefront for a while?
1: Sorry, Steve, could you just say that again?
0: Well, I'm wondering how much of our new view of social learning is the result of um, the technologies of the web. How much of it is new, and how much of it is just that we're remembering that learning is highly social?
1: Uh, I I think we're remembering that. uh, I don't think it is new. I think most of it is going old. I love, uh, for those of you that know it, I'm, I love the description that um, Bill Rankin has about the uh, ages of information and how he looks at uh, how learning is returning to where it was uh, back in Socratic times really, uh, to, because now we're not industrializing it in the way that the, uh, the middle part of time took us to. Uh, and the internet is allowing us to be uh, to reach individuals in a better way to understand to handle the information better, uh, and we therefore I think can relearn perhaps something that we lost uh, as uh, society as people in the uh, in a certain part of history. So yeah, it's not new.
0: Brad asked this question, and it may have been before I even started asking you my question, but he wondered about peer and social learning and how that relates to the cognitive growth. Are you aware of any research or understanding there?
1: I think the, 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 the uh, I suppose no, but <laughs> the, 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 there, I, I, there are lots of systems that I've seen where peer learning uh, is helping in a number of different ways. One, One of the, uh, projects project that I really liked, enjoyed was uh, personalization by pieces. Personalization by pieces was uh, a system of skills ladders where you did assessments to make your way up the skills ladder. As soon as you had reached a, a level higher, you then were able to uh, assess the people immediately below. You became one of the assessors uh, for, for the, the people immediately below. In doing that, of course, uh, I, I've always said that you, I learned more by teaching than I ever did by learning. It was when I went to teaching that I understood my subject better, and it was because of the questions other people asked. So somebody who has just passed, assessing somebody immediately below, continues their learning, continues building on it. I think systems like that have an awful lot to contribute to, uh, and to encourage reflection, to encourage the uh, development of learning, both for the learner and the uh, assessor or teacher.
0: Gavin, we've reached the top of the hour. I have to tell you, I really enjoy talking to you. This is a selfish interview because I just get to spend an hour with you. But I appreciate you making the time.
1: Oh, well, thank you and thanks, William. I, I, I feel bad. I, I'm worried, trying to reef through questions and see whether there's anything that I should have answered as we went through. But I got a little lost in the conversation too, but enjoyed it immensely.
0: No, I think I think we're good. Thanks, Gavin. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. The recording will be up later today. I actually have to run. I have another commitment, so I'm going to take off, but you do need to leave the room for the recording to process, so when you get a chance, please click on that X. And, Gavin, I'll reach out to you by email. Thank you.
1: Thank you, and thanks, everyone.
0: Bye now.